Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined, as always, on Close Reads by Angelina Stanford, Tim McIntosh, and our good friend and special guest, Heidi White. How's it going, y'all? Great. Terrifically, David. Terrifically. <laughs> the the enthusiasm is hopefully oh, contagious. Man. I can't believe I didn't say fine. That was a lost moment. <laughs> oh, right? Oh, Dang man. it. Just try that again. I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh-oh. Well, maybe we'll cut right. that together. Probably not, but maybe we will. Um, we are here to to conclude the well, our I guess conclude the preliminary discussion on Hannah Coulter, Wendell Berry's novel, novel Hannah Coulter, and we will of course conclude the conversation next week with the Q and A episode. If you have questions about this book, you can send us those over on Facebook. We will. Um, We'll go ahead and post that. I think I'll probably try and post a um, a request for questions, a thread for that uh, today or tomorrow, and then we'll try to get to those. We'll probably end up having to record that Wednesday of next week, Tuesday or Wednesday of next week. So um, we'll have to get a final schedule on that. But if you want to send in questions, I'm sure there will be plenty of questions given the conversation that's been going on on Facebook. Um, Hashtag Hannah Coulter Q&A. Sure, that works. Hannah Coulter, close reads Q and A, whatever we want to do, um, or we'll just start the thread and you can respond. You can put your questions in, in that thread. If you if you are not on Facebook, I've been getting a lot of emails from people who are saying, uh, "I need information on close reads," and I'm not on Facebook. So what do I do? So we have a uh, solution for you. You can of course email me your questions, and my email is david at cerciinstitute But for people who want to get updated or want more close reads content, we are going to be creating a monthly email. Um, I guess just a monthly email. It's going to go out. It's going to have um, information on the upcoming books and all that kind of stuff, as well as maybe a, a little reflection. And maybe uh, we'll do a little, if we find links or other research on the whatever books going on that month, we'll post that stuff in there as well. So be on the lookout for that. We will post that on on the Facebook page. And then we'll also, of course, if you're not on Facebook, you can't get that, but we'll post it on the, uh, the a link to it in the, in the show description. So um, also, before we get going, I just want to say a quick word from a sponsor. Um, if you have ever been to a Cersei conference or maybe went to one several years ago, uh, here and there, you may have heard of Augustine College. They're, they're out of Canada. They have sent speakers to our conferences. They've sponsored the conferences before. And they are a uh, really excellent liberal arts college. It's small, um, kind of like a new college Franklin type thing, maybe a little bigger than that, but uh, that same sort of that same sort of idea. And they have um, what's kind of a, well, I guess you could say it's a once in a lifetime opportunity if you are... Um, interested in kind of being a pioneer, you can be a part of their first class of Augustine College in the United States. Uh, This is a one-year Christian liberal arts program nestled in the beautiful mountains of Blacksburg, Virginia. And they have scholarships available for early applicants. If you're interested, you can go to truthisbeautiful.org. And again, that's truthisbeautiful.org to learn how to be a part of Augustine College's first uh, class in the United States. Um, Again, this is a Christian classical liberal arts program nestled in Blacksburg, Virginia, up there in the mountains. If you've ever been to that part of the country, it's really lovely. So I recommend you check that out at truthisbeautiful.org. And thanks to them for sponsoring Close Reads this, this week. Yeah, okay. thanks. All right. Hannah Coulter. Um, Heidi and Angelina had a whole conversation here <laughs> that they think we didn't hear. Um, and uh, they pretend they're going to pretend to give us that conversation again, I assume. But before we do that, um, I, <laughs> before we do that, I have a question for you that I've been thinking a lot about while I've been reading. And, I, and I, it's kind of a question that I'm seeing people discussing on the periphery, like I don't think anyone has sort of stated it this way, 
but it's re- it's a question that's related thematically to a lot of the conversation that's going on, on on the Facebook page, and that I hear people talk about a lot when they read both this book and much of the Wendell Berry canon. And here's that question, and it's going to be a problematic question. You guys are going to hate it, and I'm okay with that because drama is good <laughs> for the show, right? Here's what I here's what I want to know. It's a semi personal question. It's actually a very personal question. How does Hannah Coulter, or what does Hannah Coulter, this particular book, not the character, make you think or feel about yourself? This is not a question I've ever asked about a book on this show. Um, in other words, I guess the question is, you know, a lot of people talk about how introspective she is and how they come away from it sort of reflecting. And, and Heidi, you talked about this when you first mm-hmm. read it. It made you kind of rethink the way you were living which kind of indicates that there was something about the way you were living then that you were uncomfortable with. So, um, and I'll start with you then. Um, when you read this book, does it make you feel, and I don't mean like, does it make you feel better about yourself or worse about yourself, but what does it kind of, what does it help you understand better about yourself or reveal about yourself? That's a, it really is a good question. And like you said, that's, it's a personal question. So I think that there are and Just two... to be clear, I'm not asking you guys to go into like detail sure. about personal life so much as... Wait, uh, you the... don't want to hear the story of how my first husband died in World War II? I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear the story about everything that's happened since that point, since your husband sure. died in World War II, because I'm very confused about the time frames there. Hey, I want to hear know. all about the time travel. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm not asking for like your stories, like the details of your stories, but right, I think that we right. can still talk about this without getting into that. Sure. Well, <laughs> I, I think that there are two responses that I have had to this book. And as you pointed out to the entire Wendell Berry canon. And the first one is the personal response, uh, specifically in this book, because I'm a woman and a wife and a mother I have a very personal response to that. I, I, to her, she, she's a woman in a happy marriage. Like she says, there's troubles in it, but it overall, it's, it's a happy, connected, loving marriage. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think every woman who reads this is going to, um, is going to respond to that right? Either with gratitude or with longing or a mixture of both. And I certainly have had that response to her marriage and to her parenting. Um, and I think the second level of response is a response to the lifestyle that Wendell Berry portrays in Hannah Coulter and in his canon. And that I shared on the last podcast, how that again, reawakened, I used this word earlier, the longing. There's something about Wendell Berry's work that awakens desire and longing within our hearts uh, for uh, a homeland. And she even uses that word in the section we read this week, that the homeland that she created on her farm. And so that is a very personal response to me. I evaluate my own choices on how I build a home and how I invest in relationships and in my community based on this novel. And, and I, I look, as I look at um, the Facebook group and how the listeners are responding, I'm seeing that as well. It's, it seems a universal reaction to this book. Hmm. Hmm. Tim, do you want to, I mean, do you want to jump in there? I mean, you can respond to Heidi or you can just give us your, your thoughts on that. Does it, does this go, go ahead? Go ahead. 
No, you go ahead, David. Help me. Well, I was going to say, I guess <clears throat> one of the things I was the way some people were sort of discussing it is, does this book, is it challenging to you or encouraging to you more? It's much more challenging. Why? Um, well, I, I, for the reasons that we discussed last week, you know, the, um, the form of life that Hannah and her family have chosen has just not been a form of life that I've chosen or that I've ever really like had a choice to either choose it or not choose it. I feel mm. like by the time that I, um, I moved up to Commerce, Georgia when I was 28 or 29. I mentioned this last week. It was a 300-acre farm, and I moved. I was living upstairs from a woman who reminds me so much of Hannah Coulter. Her name was Mrs. Nunn. And, oh, my goodness, she had – I mean, you should have just seen her hands at age 80. Her hands were – where <laughs> they were a work of art. They were so <laughs> gnarled. They were so, um, she had put so much use into those hands and they showed and she, she would make Sunday lunch for myself and, uh, Jim Bouchard, the man who bought the farm from she and her husband. And I, I, she would write, <laughs> I'm like, this is a trip down memory lane for me. She would write checks. She would write checks to these, um, these Christian organizations that did, you know, like the 700 club. And I kind of did not want her to write checks to those organizations. And I, but the pureness of her heart in writing those checks, I mean, she did not have much money, but she consistently would write them five and $10 checks every month. And, Mm. um, I had so much respect for that woman, but the kind of like interior life that she had just felt so, it was so different than mine. And there was, I think that the kind of like long, hard work and the long obedience in the same direction that Mrs. Nunn lived and that Hannah Coulter lived. I didn't take it as a rebuke, but I took it as, I wish that I had more of that in me. Hmm. That's interesting. I feel like a lot of people who have been reading the book at various times have made comments that seemed to seemed like they were reading Barry as being as rebuking, uh, as rebuking the reader. So I I think that's an interesting distinction, and we may talk about that some more. I'm sure that'll come up a little bit more in the Q and A. Angelina, would you like to take a stab at this question? Sure. Um, So my answer will be different. So for a variety of reasons, ranging from my personality type to the circumstances of my life, the absolute defining question slash obsession of my life is the question, what is love? And everybody who knows me well knows that this is, <laughs> this is almost a maniacal obsession with me. Like I, I read everything anyone has ever written about love because I want so much to know what it is because it is not something I have known through experience. Um, And I'm not just talking about romantic love, although that's included in that, but also paternal love, filial love. What is love? What's divine love? What are all the manifestations of it? What are, what's the difference between filial love and romantic love? All of these things are, are just (laughs) a complete obsession of mine. Uh, I spend a lot of time 
reading this stuff and thinking about this stuff and texting Heidi in the middle of the night, my thoughts about it. And, <laughs> and so when I read Barry, and this is true of Hannah Coulter, this is true of Jaber Crow, this is true even of his essays, the passages that I cry about, the passages that I <laughs> text to people in the middle of the night um, are all the passages on love. All of my favorite books are my favorite books because I think that they have given me some insight into what love is. Um, and with Wendell Berry, I th- it, it, it just, it goes beyond that. It's like, it's not just an insight. I feel like he's introducing me into the mystery of love and I mm. understand it almost experientially through his books. Mm. And, and, and so I feel like I get transformed. I feel like somehow I'm vicariously, I experienced what it would be like to be loved by Hannah Coulter. And that changes me and hopefully mm. makes me better able to love other people. Mm. I think that, I think that, that that's really um, profound, I guess, is, is the best way of putting it. Like that kind of an experience is, is, mm. you know, the sort of transcendence that great literature offers us. And I think in some ways, you know, it, the fact that he can draw us into that and offer us sort of almost, you know, you, you sort of said it's almost like a participation in, in that. I don't know. You didn't use that word. Experiential, but, like but yes, yes. I feel like I participate in it. Yes. <clears throat> and that's both like, I feel like that's where it could, the book can be both encouraging and challenging because it offers, it shows us a model to, to mm-hmm. follow. And it challenges us to, to follow that model as best we can in our circumstances and with the people that we have around us that, that have been given to us to love, whatever those look like, whether it's children or a spouse or friend or whatever it is. Um, and so we can, Barry's becomes a model, Barry's character has become a model for us and his ideas, I suppose. And then also at the same time, it can be, you know, that, that experience, I guess, as you indicated, can be, I, I, were you, I, maybe I, I don't want to speak for you. Were you saying that that is sort of an encouraging thing that, that, that is that, that experiential nature of what he's doing there is an encouragement. Well, so I don't think that or- I think about it in those terms. I always think of it as he's entered me into the mystery of love. And that is a mixture of grief and joy. Mm. So I feel mm. both of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you identify, um, we talked about it a little bit in the first episode, but this goes to you and Heidi and Tim, I've got some questions for you in a bit, but um, I want to, since we're going on this track, I'm going to turn to the, to the ladies for a second. Do you both, mm-hmm. do you, to what degree do you identify with Hannah and Angelina, mm-hmm. since you had the floor, I'll let you keep it. And then I'll flip it over to Heidi after that. Uh, I think I identify with her very little. She's just a very different kind of woman than I am. So does that, um, okay. So in general, how do you feel about her? I heard you saying something before I got on about how people feel about her um, when you two were just chatting. So I'm curious how you, like, what is your, how do you, how do you feel? What is your relationship to Hannah, the character like having read it again? Well, I mean, I, I like her and I think she's admirable, but I, I mean, her, her responses to things are not, my responses to things, but I'm again, I don't, I don't think about books like that though. No, that's fair. Um, can I ask you one more question about about what you just said? Okay. So you said uh, when you say it wouldn't be your response. So do you, does that mean to you that you think that she, and I'm not 
This is a complicated question. Mm-hmm. I recognize. Does that mean that you think that she's making the wrong responses oh, to no, things? No, 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 different than no, no. Okay. I just, yeah, she's just a very different. No, no, I don't mean any. any so it's not different. Like you're judging her. You no, think she's and, a wrong. And it's not okay. one of those things like, oh, this doesn't have the ring of truth. A woman wouldn't act like this. No, women do act like this, <laughs> not this woman. But I'm all, I'm hyper aware that I'm never like any other woman. Like I just am silent on the Facebook page when other women put, and I'm going to really put myself out on the limb for this, but. They, they'll put a quote of something Hannah said and felt that was deeply meaningful to them. And then they'll all rally around about how that was a perfect description of the female experience. And I'll just think, yeah, not a shred of connection to that. Like, did not feel any, I don't, I don't feel that way about that kind of thing, but I recognize that most women do. And so I'm going to honor that. So their it turns experience. out that people are individual humans. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, you know. So can I turn to Heidi real quick yes. then and we'll, we'll come back around. So Heidi, how much do you identify? I mean, Angelina says she recognizes, she admires her, but maybe doesn't identify. Do you feel the same way or do you identify with her a little bit more than, than Angelina is sort of saying she does? That's a great question. Uh, I think one of the strengths of Wendell Berry's writing uh, is that he creates such individual and particular characters who feel mm-hmm. like real people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Han is no exception to that. Uh, and one of Barry's most masterful uh, creations of character. So no, I don't think I'm anything necessary. Well, I don't know. I don't want to say I'm nothing like Hannah, but she, she is a very different person than I am. But uh, as I mentioned before, I think there's on those two levels of experiences, the personal and the lifestyle. I do relate to her on the personal experience, what it means to love a man fiercely but flawed over many years uh, and to raise children together and to do meaningful work together and to connect and then sometimes fall apart and come back together again. I I relate to that. Everything Mm -hmm. she says, I relate to in that. Uh, Parenting, I'm, I'm, her children are, uh, you know, we just finished reading about how they turned out as adults and I have no idea how my children will, but her descriptions of those young years and, you know, David, I think you might relate to this too. When you take your kids out in the woods and, um, and you create this family culture and how meaningful that is and the memories and the emotions, I, mm-hmm. I do relate to that very much. Um, mm-hmm. but as terms of the lifestyle, which is that second level that I talked about before, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sewing kitchen curtains, uh, for myself and my neighbors and, you know, thinking about the, the calves birthing in the spring and all of that. Um, but the idea of building a life, uh, a happy and sad life over many years and decades. Yes. I connect to that. Hey, Tim. Hey, what, when it, okay. So the reason I'm focusing so much on, on the character and what we think of her is because you can't really get away from this book. We can't, we can't finish the discussion on this book without having um, at least some conversation on who she is and why she's, you know, she's the central voice of the book. Yeah. So as a character, you know, and the character of the character, so to speak, how do you, um, what do you admire most about Hannah? Mm -hmm. And then, as a man, I guess. I mean, obviously, you're a man. Mm-hmm. So, but as a man, what do you admire most about about her? And what do you not? Well, we'll start there. We'll just stay there. And why? Um, and I guess why does she work as a character? I think I most respect her 
long suffering. Like mm-hmm. she suffered a lot and she didn't lose her way. She didn't make it about her. Um, I really, really respected that. She went through a lot and she just didn't dwell on it. I mean, she told us the story, but she didn't dwell on it that much. Maybe Okinawa was the longest period of kind of, um, I don't know, frustration at something that had happened to her. And it didn't even really happen to her. She was more, it seemed like she was more frustrated on behalf of her husband than on her own behalf. What was the second part of the question, David? <laughs> that you asked? Uh, <laughs> you don't remember. I don't remember. Um, do, do you guys collectively, I think this goes out to all three of you, do you see her as, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, it's a lot easier. The ideas in my head, it's uh-huh. not the same thing yes. as the words that are. Yeah, yeah, about. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you do you ever feel like she's an incomplete character? Hmm. In what way? I guess like, my, my like... guess my answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you so she's a, so you feel because uh, you must so be some feeling thing... something. What are you feeling? No, well, <laughs> what I'm wondering is I I'm is she a little too sort like a little too. Um, did you think, start to say storybook? Yeah, storybook or a little too um, perfect. I don't even want to say perfect because it's that's too mm-hmm. that's like the wrong the wrong right. word. I mean, I saw part of this is coming from comments I saw on Facebook where people are saying it seems like you know like where's the negative side of it? Like and sure. when you're when you're talking about like narrative thrust and all that kind of stuff, like what is it that like where's the mm-hmm. there's not really a narrative arc here. She's just sort of reflecting on her life and she'll go like large swaths swaths of time will pass and okay, it's hard see, to know like what is the thing that. She, Go ahead. Right. We're running into the same problem that we ran into with Brideshead Revisited. We are forgetting mm-hmm. the form of the story. This is an mm-hmm. old yes. woman retelling the story of her life. That is entirely different in the narrative sense than if this is being told to us as it happens. Because she says like over and over, this mm-hmm. is the story of my gratitude. So that is the story she's crafting of learning how to be grateful about everything that's happened. So, the, so it, what she is, the story she's telling us is dictated by the form, if that makes sense, right? Well, it does. Yeah, yeah. She's not going to go into some self-pitying rant because this is the story of her gratitude. But it doesn't mean she didn't have those moments. And I think she indicates plenty of times she struggles with Nathan's diagnosis, for example. Mm-hmm. Do you think that she would have, uh, you know, I'm not one that's... <laughs> going to critique Wendell Berry very often. But do you think that it's possible that she could have been a more fully rounded or well-rounded character if we had had more, we had had uh, more scenes um, of like where drama is happening and less like a series of reflections? Uh, Tim, I'm curious what you think about that as, as a playwright. And I'll let you answer that, but I'm curious what Tim thinks. I'll just flip to him first. Do we, do we, would we have gotten a, a fuller picture of her if it had been more of a, like a traditional narrative arc? I don't even necessarily mean traditional narrative arc, but we don't even have many, much in terms of scenes, right? Like there's not much yeah. where an actual thing happens um, and, and something changes within the scene so much as right. these, right. a series of reflections. And I'm not saying, and I understand the, the point about, you know, sticking to there's a specific kind of form Barry and Hannah Coulter herself are, are employing here. Um, but, uh, I, I think you could still make a case that it's possible that she, we could we could experience her as a more well-rounded character with more um, more specific scenes. I'm not sure if that makes sense. What what I'm saying? You know, David, I wonder if part of what I I appreciate about this book is that he took a character that 
at least in my life, I always kind of, this is terrible to admit, is a background character. You know, Hannah Coulter is not, um, she's not like conquering mountains. She's not talkative. She's not creating um, conflict between the people that she lives with and loves. When you said and background character, easy. did you mean that in most stories, she'd be the kind of character who would just yes. be periphery? Yes. And I'm not saying that she is unimportant, but I just think like in most in most plays or novels, I think that she would be she would be difficult to notice because so he's giving a voice to someone who would rarely yeah, have this yeah. sort of a voice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's put he's yes. putting her in the spotlight. And I so appreciate that. So it's difficult. It would be a difficult um play to write it, it writing the hannah coulter player the hannah coulter <laughs> traditional novel would be a difficult one to write mm-hmm. so i appreciate the fact that it's more of a memoir it just seems like the form that was required to let her tell her or to have her story told and i was I thinking about think, that well just to complete the thought or yeah, to answer yeah, yeah. the question i don't think that um I actually think we got more of her in using the form that we use that Wendell Berry used rather than less of her. So I, I, I like that answer. So I was thinking about the whole turning it into a play type thing. Um, and I know that people tried to buy the rights to it for a movie um, earlier in the oh, 2000s. No, no. And he, no. he wouldn't sell it, but well, actually what he said was, he wouldn't sell any of his other stuff, but that his, but that his wife, Tanya actually owns the rights to this book. So he's like, when she's gone, she can do it. When I'm gone, she can do whatever she wants. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, or something like that. I mean, you're, I've heard that, that all secondhand through people that know him. <clears throat> um, but do you, what is it about the way he's able to, to tell the story and structure and the form that Angelina is pointing out here? What is it about it that, that despite these large gaps in time, jumping from one decade to the next, sometimes skipping four or five decades, going back and forth in the, in these children, in the children's lives and still not really having particularly many real scenes. What is it about that keeps that about that, that keeps this book from being disorienting? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what uh, Heidi, what you think about that? And then, or Angelina, you can go first for either one of you. Because there's a real, there's not, there's not many points when you're like disoriented with where they are in time. It doesn't, it almost doesn't yeah. matter. Um, there's not a lot of, um, the narrative jumps around, but it's not confusing. And, you know, right. there's a, there's a, um, there's a pacing that's, mm-hmm. that's, that despite what could feel very jerky, so to speak, is um, gentle. Sure. I think uh, I'll take a shot at that. I, I think that for the most part, she does stick to a chronology. And I think the reason that it works is because she is remembering her life in a very similar way that we might remember our lives. Um, big chunks of time, you know, the, the way that we go, oh, this is what I used to do when the kids were little. Or mm-hmm. when we were first married, we always did this. So she, she is rem- as Angelina, I, I 100% agree with Angelina's point that this is, uh, the form dictates what works in her telling her own story. And she, 
the reason it's not disorienting is because it's the same way we remember who we are. When we look back on our own lives, we recognize that the details are different, but we understand that when we're looking back at an era or a season, we tend to generalize about it. And uh, she's telling herself that story again in order to remember who she is as she approaches the end of her life. Hmm. Angelina, do you have anything to add to that? I was going to say the same thing about the memory motif being so strong in this book. And so I I like the fact that the narrative follows the kind of, you know, haphazard way almost that our minds jump around from memory to memory. Mm -hmm. And I also just, and I've talked about this before. I can't remember what other book we talked about this, but I love the idea of crafting a story out of your life and and trying Mm -hmm. to make sense of your life through a story. And I've mentioned on, on some previous episodes that I've, read books by psychologists that talk about how that is the number one factor in between a happy person and an unhappy person or a healthy person and an unhealthy person is their ability to take the events of their life and to craft it into some kind of meaningful narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, I mean, it's in terms of, it's fascinating in terms of trauma, you get stuck in the moment of, of the story (laughs) of the trauma, you get stuck there unless you can incorporate it into an overall narrative arc and then it just becomes one more pot plot point that you work through and then you move on so i'm fascinated with that idea i love that the basic idea of this is what it you know she's asked what is the what is the story of my life and she has decided that the story of her life is gratitude right that's not the mm-hmm. conclusion she draws she's it's her premise she starts off i'm mm-hmm. i'm i'm gonna have a grateful life and then she tells the story of the gratitude and and even when in our own lives because you know, you've told your, you've, you've worked through this with your kids, right? Trying to teach them how to find the grateful thing, even in the bad, right? Um, mm-hmm. And you make them go through the forms of say you're sorry, even though you know they don't really feel sorry, right? But <laughs> when you go through the form, when you put yourself in the story, mm-hmm. it, it becomes real. And so by her choosing to say, nope, the story of my life is going to be gratitude, then it becomes true. So the activity of writing this book itself is... Uh is the activity of practicing gratefulness. Yes. I like that. Yes. Hmm. She just as easily could have been like, this is the complaint of my life, or this is the story of my Mm -hmm. grief and the unfair. So we, we, in a very real sense, we really are the stories that we tell about ourselves, right? We, we, Mm -hmm. we all get in these ruts where we're telling sad stories about ourselves and you get stuck in there. Hmm. I like the idea that I think there's a, there's a subtle, but crucial difference between um, you, you mentioned the story of my grief versus the story of my gratefulness. And obviously those are, I don't mean the subtlety is in those two words because those are two very different things. But the grief, when you say that this is the story of my grief, you, you're essentially talking about this is the story of all the things that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about this is the story of my gratefulness, you're talking about the way I think about the things that happened to me. Yes. And those are two mm-hmm. very different ways of thinking about both your life and, a, and a, any kind of narrative, mm-hmm. really. Um, right. And that does seem like a key part of what's what's driving the whole way Barry's telling the story. Sure. And if I can, oh, go ahead, Angelina. Well, I was just going to say that you know I have seen on on the Facebook page some people feeling like this is overly sentimental and you know that, too that's good to my be, next question. Too we're good to be true, to but I think that's connected with what we're talking about, right? Like she's determining to tell a grateful story, and maybe that mm-hmm. does strike some of us as being not realistic because it is, in a sense, right? in the eternal sense, of course, it is true. We all have lives of gratitude, but when you're in it, sometimes it can be very hard to see the gratitude in the moment Mm. or what there is to be grateful for. Mm. It's an exercise in seeing 
yes. the light, not the dark. I mean, that's a trite way of putting it, but it's, you know, of adjusting your eyes to see a certain thing. Mm-hmm. Heidi, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, it was along with that. I'm, I'm glad Angelina spoke first. I was going to say that somehow uh, in modernity, we have along the way absorbed the idea that uh, that somehow the exposure of weakness is some kind of virtue, right? That uh, we make vulnerability into a virtue and certainly vulnerability can serve virtue, but it isn't necessarily a virtue in itself. And we have this idea with modern stories that we should deconstruct or we should expose. And I think Wendell Berry is so very careful and beautifully so, carefully so in this book to, uh, to honor the hiddenness of, uh, um, to not expose people and their sin and weakness, uh, but mm. to honor. And as um, Angelina pointed out, to look back with, with gratitude and even to cover over, as the Bible says, to cover over a multitude of sins. Hannah does that. I think she's careful to do that. And I think Wendell Berry is making a statement through that in this story. Mm. Hmm. Especially those sections, Heidi, where Hannah's talking about, um, you know, she has hopes for people, like she especially has hopes for Virgie, but she is mm-hmm. reluctant to verbalize what those hopes are. Yes. You know, it's, um, I love that part of the book. What a loving and Me too. careful thing to do. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. I mean, all of us have people in our lives that we want and we see them unhappy. We see them making bad choices and you want them, you hope for them a different sort of life, but it's, it's difficult. It's easy to let that hope kind of tip over into a sort of jaundiced view of them. And I appreciate mm-hmm. that, that Hannah, um, guards i mean she's even careful with her hope to not let it become something that becomes sort of a corrective salt or something like that well she says hope but not expectation yeah right yes and that's again you know one of the things i think is coming to the forefront for me in this conversation is the the degree to which wendell berry and his characters can exist like in the subtleties the subtleties between like hope and expectation like the way there's just a wisdom in, in being able to Mm -hmm. identify those subtleties and then staying on the right side of them or recognizing when you're beginning to drift to the wrong side of them and self-correcting. Yeah, Like that's, that's, that's an example of like, I mean, it takes experience. Like it takes an old woman and some of that, you know, she, she recognizes, she looks back and recognizes the way she treated her children when they were young Mm -hmm. was at times she put unjust hopes on them or burden them, maybe not unjust, but burden them with things that were unfair. And it took experience to realize that she did wrong by them in some degree in doing that and was able to hopefully adjust a little bit with, with her grandchildren. Um, Let's talk about this idea of the sentimentality though. Hmm. Cause there, you know, that's a common charge against Barry that he is sentimentalizing a place um, and people who are extremely flawed and, it's a very, who, who, who have certainly in some ways, um, brought some of their own issues upon themselves and have not always been 
kind and and things like that to, to people within i mean there's there's problems with every community and the very people that give the charge that he glosses over those too often or or he is kind of you know just one of those people looking back at the mid-century america and like there's just a far too saccharine view of it so how do how do you i i take it that the three of you don't agree with that so if that being the case how can you give me a couple of ways that you believe that he manages to avoid that tim i'll let you go mm-hmm. first Oh no! Oh no! All right, Heidi, you can go first. <laughs> Good, please. <laughs> sure. Well, uh, I'll start out by saying that I, I think there actually is some justice to that. Um, there's plenty of rivalries and bickering and jealousies in small town America. That uh, just like there are anywhere else, people are just as fallen and just as flawed there, and, I, and I, they don't necessarily. That doesn't necessarily appear in Barry's books. However, I, 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 if I can interrupt, yeah. I do think yeah. it shows up a lot more in his short fiction. Okay. For what it's worth, and some of the earlier okay. novels. So okay. you, also like in Jaber Crow, there's a lot more unhappiness. Yeah, in Jaber Crow, there's yeah. more, but in Hannah Coulter, there's really not. Which his I think we've addressed. Trade in that a lot more, I will say. Sure. He, when he was and younger and more angry, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but in, but Hannah Coulter is a very specific kind of novel. So for yep, the listeners yep. who have who, if this is your only Barry, go back and read that fiction. Uh, and then, and then comment on that uh, at that point. But it, it would not work in Hannah culture for the reasons that we just discussed. The other, the other thing that I would say, and I think it was um, one of our faithful listeners, Kelly Cumby, who mentioned this on the on the Facebook page, and I loved it. She compared Wendell Berry to Flannery O'Connor, uh, saying that. Do you remember when in Mystery and Manners, when Flannery O'Connor makes that statement that you have to draw in big kind of crayon figures in order to get people's attention Mm -hmm. to something? Mm -hmm. And that's why her fiction is so dark. Here we have Mm -hmm. kind of the flip side of that in Wendell Berry, specifically in Hannah Coulter. We're drawing a big idealized picture because this thing, we're losing it. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to get our attention onto it to look Mm -hmm. at it. Mm. to mourn its loss and to try to recreate the goodness that we can from that thing that is being lost. Mm. Mm. Yes. All right. So I'm going to piggyback on that by going to my favorite thing that I like to talk about, which is form. So if you read Mm. this book and you're upset that it's quote unquote, not realistic, then you have entered this book with a set of expectations that are all your own and you put them on Wendell Berry and then you judged him for it (laughs) because not every book is trying to be quote unquote realistic. And you should have been right. more hopeful and not had expectations. <laughs> well, well, right. I mean, okay, so if Wendell Berry is trying to be uh, like an inverse Flannery O'Connor, and I and Kelly Cummings one of my favorite people, so I love that comment. Um, I think that's spot on too. If he is trying to okay, Heidi and I had talked a while back, and I had said that I thought one of the great tragedies of my parents' generation is that they don't know that they lost something. Mm-hmm. So if Wendell Berry's job is to wake us up all from the dream we are in and say, hey, you've lost something, then he's going to paint it big. He's giving us mm-hmm. a vision and an ideal. If he sets out to write this gritty, realistic novel about how people <laughs> in small town America are just as crummy as they are in the inner city you know, of a big city America, they're all just crummy. All human beings are crummy. Where's the vision? What's the point of that book? We, we don't need a book to tell us rural life is just as crummy as everywhere else because there are people there and people are crummy. You know, we already have a steady stream of that message, right? His message is to try to show us 
something was lost. Not that this, and people seem to be accusing him of thinking that rural life was heaven on earth. And no, he doesn't. He grew up there. Mm -hmm. You think he doesn't know how crummy it is? <laughs> you think he doesn't know that people can be small-minded and petty and that there are all kinds of problems everywhere you go? Of course he knows that. He also was in academia, so he knows that's pretty crummy too, because like, mm -hmm. everywhere is crummy. But he's trying to give us a vision of what was lost and, and make us long for it and, and to make us recognize that the choices we have made have come at a real price. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if I can jump on that, the other thing that I think gets lost is I think you're absolutely right that he's trying to cast a vision. He's trying to present us with a vision so that we can see it um, and to see what's been lost and perhaps participate in the recovery of it. But he's also trying to give voice to people and to mm -hmm. a place that doesn't have a voice mm -hmm. anymore. That's mm -hmm. what his, that's what the documentary um, really focuses on. And I wrote a, I wrote a review of that for Christ in pop culture a few years ago. And the title of it was Wendell Berry loves your nowhere place. Cause he talks about how mm -hmm. in, in, he talks about how we, we look, we look at these tiny towns like Port, Port William or Port Royal, Kentucky, which is, I mean, it is basically, I mean, it, I've been, I've been there in the road I mean, at best. Um, and, um, it, it basically is a nowhere place and that's what we call mm -hmm. them. And, and people, you know, people say they come from nowhere. Um, and so he's, he's actively trying to give voice to place to places and respect to places that have not been respected. Um, and you're unlikely to, if you're, un, you're, if you're trying to do that, you're unlikely to paint them in a, a particularly negative light. Yes. Um, and I think so. that you're wrong. People, I think if, if you're reading the book as rural versus city and rural good, city bad, then you have missed the point. And I think that you have mm -hmm. also missed, and you brought this up, David, you've missed the subtleties. The criticisms are in these books, but they are very subtle. Um, yeah. And again, it has to do with the vision. Like if this was really about rural good, city bad, mm -hmm. then the people he describes as fleeing city life and moving to Port William, that would have been awesome. Huh. It wasn't. They ruined the community. They're not happy there. Mm -hmm. They're there for a little while and then they move on to the next thing, right? It's because it's about being connected to people <laughs> and to place right. and, and not just a geographical location that you have no ties to, that you mm -hmm. can just come into and magically all your problems are fine. Yeah, people are people are people are usually discontent not because they're in the city. They're in discontent because they're either not in their place or they're not in any they don't have any place. Um, mm -hmm. It's not that the specific place, the one specific place is inherently better. Although I think he believes, he certainly does believe in an agrarian way of life and that losing that is damaging to a culture, which I, I think you can believe that and still be okay with the cities. Um, but it's not the specific place so much as so, so much as the idea of place and like loyalty to place and participation in place. Right. Um, and so like you, look you live in the suburbs. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to use the example of the character of Margaret. So she moves to the city, mm. but that that's not what destroys it. Right. It's the fact that the world she enters into is so fragmented that she and her husband are living completely separate lives from, from the word go. Right. So she's disconnected from her family. She's disconnected from her husband. And then, they end up in the inevitable divorce situation because their lives have been on two separate tracks. And Wendell Berry talks about that in several of his essays where he talks about modern life is just one long pre-divorce practice, right? I have uh, my life and my stuff. You have your life and your stuff. And then when it comes down to divide everything up, it's super easy because we've already done it. <laughs> and so that, you know, that's in this book that happens in the city, but it could just as easily happen in a rural life too. The point is, she moves to modernity and has a fragmented existence that destroys her. Mm. 
Hey, Tim, I want to give you a chance to respond to this, this idea of it being sentimental. Did you, I'm having a hard time answering this question. I've been kind of checking in and out with my thoughts as Angelina and Heidi have been answering. And I'm, I'm kind of reluctant because I'm, I feel like I'm still kind of in this argument with Wendell Berry and I've just not really resolved it. And there, I, so I'm, there is a little bit of me that thinks, yeah, I think it might be a little bit rose colored. I absolutely get, and I think Angelina is right. Um, but I do think there's a point in which we could say, um, with every narrative, even when we accept the form, I still think there's a point in which we could say, but I can still be critical. I can still accept the form and still be critical that it didn't really, um, fulfill the promise that it set out and i like i said i I finished i finished the book a couple hours before we started the podcast and i just had not it's not really sunk in well enough for me to say yeah 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 oh i know what my complaint is so i'm just i i kind of function pretty intuitively with literature but that means that sometimes my intuition is it moves pretty slowly. Yeah, that's fair. Hey, for time for time reasons, I, mean, I think we'll probably end up talking about that more in the Q&A episode because I suspect mm-hmm. a couple of clarifying questions will probably arise. But I want to give Angelina and Heidi a chance to bring up whatever they were <laughs> planning to bring up. For We have about 15 minutes left, we'll say. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that. Okay, so I was wondering this morning as I was reflecting on the book, why do men love this book. And I don't mean it in some kind of ideological way, because obviously there are plenty of books with a female protagonist that men love. Okay. And I have, I love books with male protagonists. So I'm not saying that more like when I hear women talk about this book, almost always it's like, Oh, Barry has captured a woman's voice in the various stages of her life. And I can see myself through Hannah's eyes and he has named all the complex things I feel as a woman. So I'm guessing that's not how men relate to this book. So (laughs) I'm curious what is it about this book that would make a man love it? And I guess I started thinking about that because I was talking to your dad earlier in the week and he was expressing to me, quote, his great bitterness that he had not been asked to be on this episode. But, <laughs> but he expressed how much he loved the book and that got me wondering, what, what, what does a man connect with? Why would a man really love this book? Tim. No, David, no. <laughs> you. <laughs> You love this book, David. I mean, I think it's complicated. I, I don't. So first of all, let me say it's, I don't actually, it's not actually probably in my top three of my favorite Barry mm-hmm. books, which just says a lot about how much I appreciate his books and what they've kind of mm-hmm. meant to me, but that's more of some of that's more of like nostalgia and stuff like that. Um, I think, let's see. Okay. Let me see if I can, think through this. I think there are a number of reasons. I think one, because you have the character of Nathan, who is um, in many ways um, both relatable and worth imitating. Um, So like you can understand, I think most men can probably understand some of the internal not not if you've been to war you can't understand the specifics but yes. there but there are things about the way he interprets the world and experiences it that are um that we all sort of identify with um mm-hmm. 
I think that in Hannah, there is, um, I suspect that there's, there's some, like when you say that you're kind of asking are men in love with Hannah? <laughs> well, that was one of the things I asked Heidi and then she responded, Does she, is she the kind of woman that men fall in love with? <laughs> well, I would say no, not necessarily. Um, yeah. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to think through. I, I mean, at least two did, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> when she was young and cute. I'm, um, I'm just teasing. I'm yeah. just teasing. No, I, well, and I think that, you know, you know, unlike, unlike a lot of female characters in, in great fiction, you know, there is a lot of, a lot put on a, a lot of description about what they look like. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's even in some of the secondary characters in Brideshead or um, mm-hmm. you even get it a little bit in Howard's end. Like it's very clear the degree to which this is a beautiful woman and why that makes that part makes her desirable. And the only mm-hmm. person you ever hear, the only person that ever says anything about how desirable Hannah, Hannah is, is Hannah herself saying, when I was young, I was, I can say now that I was beautiful. And then she just right. describes how um, she was grateful. I suppose she's saying for the fact that she was desirable to her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's not like, uh, she's not a woman that you're going to fall in love with for the reasons that are often presented in, in books. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But there's, there's like a dignity to her and um, the way I th- honestly, okay. You know what, now that I'm speaking, I think that probably one of the reasons why a man might, appreciate her character is the idea the degree to which she is um okay this bear with me as i say this and don't take <laughs> take it in the worst way possible there is a degree to which she respects her husband mm-hmm. yes and like there's a certain there's a degree of respect which every man i, I think i'm um, mm-hmm. speaking generalizations hopes mm-hmm. to be respected right and not respected right for shallow reasons, but respected because they're worthy of respect. And she, she identifies the things about both Virgil and Nathan that are worthy of respect. And she holds on to those things and she clings to them. And in their less um, loving and less kind mm-hmm. moments, you know, the, when, the moments when Nathan wasn't as gentle as we discussed, he was, she saw him, she still was able to keep the perspective of the things that she did respect about him. And I mm-hmm. think that that is something that most, if not all men f- have a desire to, 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 to feel, to, to be around. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that, and that, and all, you know, their, her dignity is worthy of respect. I think probably men like it for some of the same reasons that women like it. Um, right. I'm just trying to think of what, if there's something specific that would not be why. No, why this is super similar. interesting. I, but I do think, I, I honestly, I think it's 75% of why men like it is the same reasons why women like it. Hmm. Except for the okay, part about, like, okay. So I have, well, well can I, can I add one more thing? Yes, please do. Okay, so when people say that thing I like about um, Hannah is that she sees, like when a woman says she sees through me or she sees into my soul and expresses this female experience, Mm -hmm. I think what most of what that person is actually saying is that she sees into me and sees a human experience within me. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the same things that a woman says when she says that is the same thing Mm -hmm. that a man says when he says that. When, when huh. he might say that. So there's certainly yeah, things. Would you say that one more time? So like there are certainly things about her, what she's describing that are very specific to women, childbearing and being a mother mm-hmm. and things like right. that. Yeah. But there, but being a mother and being a father are differences. Like there are mm-hmm. a lot of similarities, even as there are differences. It's mm-hmm. not the same, but it's not, it's not no, entirely. I appreciate different. this. I personally don't right. relate to any of the quote unquote women's stages and feelings that everybody else is talking about. I, I relate to the, the what I see 
perceive to be the human experience. So I appreciate that a lot. I probably think about this book a lot like a man does, and that is not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> but like the things about being grateful and thankful and like not putting, Yes, that I can Dads read. have a ton of, like the expectation hope thing. Dads, I think, have, mm. have, a, ha, have a tendency, oh. as Nathan does, to put hopes and dreams and expectations like merging those two things on their kids in a way that even more so than moms do probably a lot of the time. Uh, like, cause moms yeah. have that sort of like, there's a very specific right. special relationship between a mom and a child. And like right. for, and like Nathan, the son, like the children and especially sons are like the future of the family. And like, there's so even, even in our world now, we, you know, I, I sense myself trying to, I have six year old and I almost, feel like I, I recognize that I'm thinking about, okay, what are they going to be when they're older? Right. right. And like, ah, it's my job to make sure they turn out. Okay. And like are successful <laughs> right. and things like that. And, um, so those are the kind of things that are true to both men and women. Anyway, I've, you asked me, the question got turned back to me and then I spent the next five minutes blabbering about nothing. So no, that uh, was insightful. You want to jump in now, Tim? You want to participate in this? I gave you plenty of time to think. <laughs> <laughs> he Googled, why do men like Hannah Coulter? Right. right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why do I like <laughs> I love um, that Hannah, I mean, Hannah and Nathan fought, but I didn't sense that Hannah was trying to um, change Nathan. Right. I'm sure there mm -hmm. were so many things that frustrated her about Nathan, but I just got the sense that she wasn't trying to change him. And this is like one of the, the greatest ironies about romantic relationships between men and women is that... <laughs> everyone's like dissatisfied with their partner on some level. You can be madly in love with your partner and still in some ways, there's still things that you wish you could change. And the more that you try to change them, the more brittle that aspect of them, not always, but often it becomes um, more brittle. And I, I, and the more you focus on it, she, and the more you focus on it, right. It's this kind of like destructive cycle. I had this, so I'm visiting friends and, Colorado and I was <laughs> I love this family and they have a daughter who I, I hope I don't get her age wrong I think she's 11 and she was trying to talk me into she was like why don't you stay longer stay a few more days we love having you around and it made me feel great but she was having that conversation in front of her parents and I was like I don't know that like you know, like I don't want to outstay my welcome and, you know, they've got a life that they need to live. And so, you know, I'd love to stay. So it's just this awkward sort of negotiation. She's like, why are you being so um, funny about this? You're getting embarrassed about this. And I was like, I think it's probably because I'm, you know, kind of Southern and I just, you know, it's really important. <laughs> I don't want to outstay my welcome and manners. And she, and she said, well, let's just just don't be Southern for a little bit. <laughs> just don't be Southern and then answer the question. And it was so funny for me. I was like, I have no idea how I wouldn't do mm. that. But then later she's trying mm. to change her argument and she appeals to the Southern in me. And I was <laughs> like, Hey, that's how you do it. You know, that's how you do it. You take it instead of trying to kind of like reach inside and change this kind of deep aspect with who I am, maybe mm -hmm. like what we it. do is like a really <laughs> profound lesson for a, a young person. And she like very quickly made the, made the switch. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was so, I was like, you need to remember this because this is going <laughs> to serve you well throughout life. Like find the thing that might be frustrating and see it as a, like something wonderful, something good about the other person. And it might end up kind of end up going in your favor. And so, and Hannah, 
Hannah does that. She doesn't try to change him. So you're saying that's something that's appealing about her. I kept thinking about how it surely, Nathan's silence about the early part of his life Mm -hmm. surely would have been a source of frustration for her. And I appreciated so much that she, especially after he was gone, she kind of wanted to understand it and she, and she did understand it. She looked at it and she kind of tried to feel what it would have been like for him to be in that, in the situation that he was in, in the war. Um, I thought that was just so mature is too shallow of a word, mm. deeply generous. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think she's, she sees Nathan and, and mm-hmm. for me, that's what it comes down to, right? She really mm-hmm. sees him. So she doesn't press on certain things because she, she knows the meaning behind it or why mm. he's done it. Mm. So she, she honors the intention a lot. The, I think one of my favorite parts of the book is when she describes how in that Okinawa chapter, I would think, which, you know, it's, it's really, well, so, so Bethany's grandfather was at Okinawa and, mm-hmm. um, you know, he died a couple of years ago. He was in his nineties. And he, he had a similar thing where he, I mean, Bethany's dad will talk about how he never would talk about his experience there until very late in his life. And they mm. all learned a lot of stuff, you know, um, either after he died or very late. And when he started watching things on TV and then he would say something or other, but there oh. was a silence about how, and I think that's a whole, I think that was pretty common in the generation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that you didn't, I think Angelina even talked about this last week, right? Like mm-hmm. he was yeah. part of your, you know, part of your job was to not burden other people with that. Um, but, um, what was I going to say? <laughs> her grandfather, her grandfather. Yeah. Um, Okinawa. Oh, so there's the scene, okay, so the chapter of Okinawa. So yeah. So this, do you remember the scene where she's talking about how he would sometimes, she oh, would wake up in the night yes. and he would yeah, have had a dream yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he would, Reach put his hand her. on her oh, yes. and, yeah. and he would touch her. And it wasn't like, you know, he wasn't being forward or anything. He just needed to know she was there. Mm-hmm. And, right. and that, she the, would wait. This life was real. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. And she would, she would put, she would wake up, but she wouldn't pretend that she was asleep because she didn't want him to have the burden of thinking that he, he, he had waken her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think that, you know, that scene is a, is a there's there's two sides to that scene right there's the there's the need sometimes to have someone to 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 be there for you and then there's yeah. the desire to be able to be there for people in your life as well and mm-hmm. so we can experience that that scene all of us can you know this it's a universal scene you know both men and women can 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 have a desire to be to both be there and have someone there for you right. and yes. that and that's one of those scenes that I think that's you're talking about we've talked a lot about the universal being expressed through the particular mm-hmm. and like that, those are the kind of scenes that make the book, this kind of book meaningful to us because it's an, ex, it's a particular desire that, you know, universal desire expressed mm-hmm. through a particular scene. There's like a particular yeah. um, graciousness and love and all that is expressed there. And that's why I think men like this book and women like, like that scene is, huh. you know, we all want that in some degree or another. And either you you can either Mm -hmm. be, you know, at the end of the book, she's, she's mourning that that is no longer there for her. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, she's not, she's, she's very clear about that. Like that is not something she still has. She is not able to be there for him anymore. And she does not have him there Mm -hmm. so that she can touch him when she has the dream like that. But she's also grateful that, that, you know, 
she did have that. Um, so, it, you know, it, she's mourning it, but she's choosing not to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that, you know, there's universal experience, at least universal desire, right? In, in that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how we got onto that. Did you want to say, did you guys want to add anything? You were, so is that all you guys were talking about? Is that the only thing you wanted to bring up? Yeah, that was it. I was just, yeah, it's one of those. Th- okay. So I, <laughs> I'm almost like a door to door salesman when it comes to Wendell Berry. If I meet you and I will, <laughs> one of the first things I will ask you is, do you like Wendell Berry? Do you know who Wendell, well, let me tell you about, I'm like the goth, you know, I'm like, yeah. It comes I'm up like, a lot when my kid, people meet my kids. I, I know. I'm say. like a religious zealot. Do you know about Wendell Berry? Well, let me tell you about <laughs> Wendell Berry. That is followed up then with me giving them a copy of Jaber Crow, which I have given a lot of people a copy of Jaber Crow. <laughs> Inevitably, then the question becomes after they read that and tell me that their life has been completely changed, you know, um, it's really, it, it is, a, <laughs> I'm starting to be afraid now that I hear these words coming out of my mouth. So then they tell me they had a transcendent experience on Mount Sinai with this book. And the inevitable question is, what should they read next? And I always, <laughs> always find myself stuck at that moment because, okay, so someone recently asked me, usually they say, what will I read? What should I read next? He said, what do you love best? And I will read that next. And I, th- I was like, oh, well, Hannah Coulter, but I don't know if I want to recommend this to a man or not. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. You don't have to worry about that. So, yes, this mm. is this should this is my this is my go to follow up then. So Jay mm-hmm. Crow is like tier one, like that's ambassador level. It's gold. Level. I would have <laughs> I bring him up to Hannah Coulter. <laughs> Somewhat ironically, I, I personally have a I I I recommend this book with much more fear and trembling to women than I do to men. Ah. Huh. Huh. Just, just because I, I mean, I, because I, I don't know. It's one of those things where you kind of, I don't. You want to be respectful of the very specific experiences that might. I don't. I'll just. Use, the word is, can be a little trite, I suppose, but they might trigger someone, you know. Um, so I have much more. I, I tend to recommend it to women with more more fear and trembling than men. I don't, I'm not exactly sure why. That might not be. That might be just. That might be silly. <clears throat> um, okay, but at least now we've got a consensus that I can give Hannah Coulter to a oh, man, yeah. and he won't be like, "Why Absolutely. didn't you give me this book, you crazy?" Well, woman? I don't, I don't know. They he, might, he might still say that. They might still say but that. But so, so might women. So true. <laughs> well, probably uh, somebody who's probably weeping because Jay Crow changed his life is probably not going to hate Hannah Coulter. So okay, that's 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 true. That's true. <laughs> if you you already know they like Wendell Berry. Yeah. True. True. Yeah. Hey, let's let's turn us. I mean, we there's gonna be a lot we can talk about in the Q and A episode. We didn't get to all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But I wanted to. I don't know. I wanted to focus on some stuff about Hannah the character, um, mm. given the nature of the book, and we can talk about specific lines and all that um, next week, and 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 specific scenarios and other questions. Um, but you, let's turn to some final thoughts, Tim. I'll let you. Uh, give a final thought uh, first, and then Angelina, and then we'll go to Heidi. Um, oh, you're, you're breaking up. Can you can you take a step? Can you say that again? Okay, you're still breaking up. I'm gonna turn to, I'm gonna turn to Angelina first. <laughs> Tim's robo ransom call has yeah. come through. <laughs> um, okay, my final thought. I'm gonna try to make this very short. I loved the distinction she made between ordinary grief and non-ordinary grief. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I very deeply believe that all life is suffering and no human being will escape suffering, it is also true that when we have this, everybody suffers kind of mentality, that that can be very dismissive to extraordinary suffering. Um, so I really appreciated the distinction she, she made there, There there are some types of suffering that are ordinary suffering. And then there are some things that are 
extraordinary suffering. And those are really two very different categories. Mm-hmm. And there, so we're talking kind of in that, the subtleties again? Right. Or right. would you, is that, I guess that's a question. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess it's a subtle distinction. I mean, obviously she, she puts the loss of Nathan at the end of his life as an ordinary grief. Like every, this is something every human being will experience, but mm-hmm. we had mm-hmm. this life together and, you know, you get to this point where however painful the death is, it's expected <clears> because, you know, you're at the end of your life as opposed to the death of Virgil which was had all this tragedy because he was young and had this future ahead of him. And this, this is yeah. not the ordinary grief of a human being. Mm. Or, or Nathan's experience in the war. I think yes. she, she talks about the, that, the kind of unique drama that that is, which is oh, a yes. terribly, sim, terribly uh, simplistic way of putting that. That's a great point. It's a great point. Hey, Tim. Hey. Okay. You're back. Count to three for me. Let's make sure. One, two, one, two, three. Hey guys, he can count. Yay! <laughs> now in Latin, go ahead. I've been trying to figure out though, for three years now if you, Tim can count. Um, go, go ahead, Tim. <laughs> Two thoughts. I have... Nope. Um, and... <laughs> it's, it's breaking up again. Okay, I'm going to turn to Heidi now. You're <laughs> okay. Um, I was so struck in the chapter on Okinawa on uh, Wendell Berry's reflections through Hannah on imagination. Mm. Um, the transformative and redemptive power of imagining goodness. Mm. And that on page 168, uh, he's just described the hell of war. And then he says this, he says, It is hard to live one life and imagine another, but imagination is what is needed. Mm. Want of imagination makes things unreal enough to be destroyed. Mm. Because Mm. they, then he says, people of power kill children and the old send the young to die because they have no imagination. And then he goes on to reflect on the connection between compassion and imagination. When you imagine the enemy in war as a real person, it evokes compassion, which makes it harder. It makes war even more of a hell. But at the same time, without that compassion, without the imagination we need to put ourselves in the place of another in a suffering world, we can't be redeemed. And it's that imagination that draws Nathan back home to Port William with a desire to build a life there. So that, that redemptive and transforming power of imagination and compassion just struck me so deeply. And, um, you know, that's really the kind of person I want to be, be willing to enter the sufferings of others um, because I can imagine them, which actually makes my life harder, that inner world harder, but then I can be redemptive in that i think that goes back to the to the idea of him he how he's trying to give voice to yes to people you know that wouldn't have a voice whether that's hannah who would normally be the secondary mm-hmm. character or the that's just helping somebody else or you know giving voice to a place to people from a from a place um because you can there's giving them voices and having right. the imagination to give them voices is, is a sign of respect I agree completely. And she, he, I don't want to take too much time, but he describes through Hannah, he describes Okinawa as a place that people loved and it was destroyed. 
Boy, that was and very that, moving for me. Oh, it was right? so moving. I just, just that, I felt like yes. such a jerk, right? Like you just the only association I have with Okinawa is a is a you know the enemy, right? A horrible battlefield. Mm-hmm. So many of our people right. were lost in. And, uh, right, because he, he says it's a land of song and dance. The people made beautiful things with their hands, and then, but it's that it's in seeing that and entering into the suffering of Okinawa that then gave Nathan a vision for his own homeland mm. and that that ability to imagine goodness is what saves us in a suffering world. Mm. Mm. And then he even talks about the gospel. Of course, it's Christ that saves us. Um, you can't give yourself over to love for somebody without giving yourself over to suffering. This is page 171. It is this body of our suffering that Christ was born into to suffer it himself and to fill it with light so that, and listen to this, beyond the suffering, we can imagine Easter morning and the peace of God on little earthly homelands such as Port William and the farming villages of Okinawa. Mm. That is powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm. Pretty good writer. Oh, I, you know what? He is. Uh. Yeah, it's a subordinate clauses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is good with those four in the closets. Tim, you wanna you wanna give this shot again? How do I sound now? Let's just just keep going. Just go, keep talking. Go, well, stop. just imagine what you're gonna say. <laughs> yeah, you can just imagine. Okay, I just want to say of like a very brief special guest. Remember the young woman who was like saying maybe you could be a little less southern for a second, but then she was like, no. Then she kind of was like appealed to how I was Southern. She wants to mm-hmm. say hello to all the um, Close Reads <laughs> listeners. Say okay. hi. Hi. <laughs> Did you guys hear that? Hi there. Do, we don't have a name though. Her name is Mercedes. She is a first class chef and an exemplary pianist. Mm-hmm. All right. Hello to Mercedes. Shout out to Mercedes. Hello, she's, Mercedes. She's a Renaissance woman. She is a Renaissance <laughs> woman. She is a Renaissance woman. They're calling you a Renaissance woman on the air. You're big time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think one thing that I, maybe we could talk about a little bit, I might plant a question for the Q&A is um, okay. the kind of inverse similarities between this book and Gilead. They're both memoirs, mm-hmm. um, a woman writing about a man's life, a man writing about a woman's life. I think that might be fun fodder for next week. Hmm. That, yeah, that's very interesting. <laughs> There's an essay in there. Someone's got to write an essay about this. Tim, why don't you write an essay about it? Get it published somewhere. <laughs> uh, sure. That's, okay. you, right. you do a lot better than I would have that, David. <laughs> you write it and I'll publish it. Um, so, uh, so we're going to have to go ahead and um, call it a day, I suppose. Um, but before we go, I want to remind people that they can... We're going to post that thread on Facebook. And if, you don't have, if you're not on Facebook, uh, you can go ahead and... Um, email me, david at socieinstitute.com. And then of course, if you're not on Facebook, then you might not know or have found it harder anyway to keep up with what book is next. And after we do this, so two weeks from this week, we're going to do two episodes on Tennessee Williams' play, The Glass Menagerie. So we're going to do one episode. It's not a long play. So we're just going to read the whole play and talk about it. And then we'll do the Q&A episode. So we thought, let's drop something else a little different in there, do some more drama, some more, um, you know, something that can... uh, that Tim can guide us through <laughs> all his uh, theater experience. So that will be starting from two weeks. And again, we'll do one episode just on the play where we're just going to discuss our experiences reading it. And then we're going to do one episode where we 
respond to your questions on that. So I believe you can actually even find that as PDFs online, but it should be, they should have a thousand copies at your local library or use, use bookstores on Amazon for like 27 cents. So um, that'll be that'll be next. And I'll try to post the full schedule for Close Reads in the description the description of this episode. So be on the lookout for that. So if you're not on Facebook, we're trying to get some things for you to be able to be uh, a little bit more participatory in the close reads world. So, all right. Um, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White and for Mercedes, I am David Kern <laughs> saying farewell here on close reads. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for reading Hannah Coulter along with us, send in your questions and we will talk to you next week. 